0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. Um, I remember several years ago at our family camp, which, by the way, Ron is our speaker for this year. Uh, I've announced that a few times, but excited to hear Ron speak. But several years ago at our family camp, our speaker was Gary Lapine, who, like Ron, is a former professor of mine and Angie's at ABC. He's a guy that we've learned a ton from over the years. And you may remember um, that that was the year when the weather was so bad that we had to escape, flee the ball diamonds, and come hang out down in the basement, which was not ideal. Anyway, it was also the year that Gary did a lesson on priorities in life. He used a classic illustration, one that I had seen before and that many of you had seen as well. It was familiar, but no less impactful for its familiarity. And the lesson goes like this. Take a large glass jar, and then a whole bunch of rocks of various sizes. Large rocks, smaller rocks, pebbles, sand, and as the grand finale, a jug of water. And now you try to cram them all into the jar, make everything fit. Of course, if you start with the water and then the sand and the small and then the big, you won't have room for the big. It's like this here, the one on the left. You run out of space. But if you put the big things in first, then the smaller things, and finally the tiniest things, everything will fit. Uh, It's just like our priorities. If the kingdom of God is to be a disciple's priority, and if we are a disciple, then we will fit it into our lives first. The big things go first. Then come the lesser things, and finally, the lowest priorities fit into the cracks that are left over. It's a great illustration. Big things go first, lesser things go last. There are hierarchies to life. And priorities matter. But the problem is, in life, things don't always fit nicely. Not everything can be contained so neatly. Sometimes the big rocks break down. Sometimes the sandy water obscures the whole portrait. Sometimes the individual pebbles get ignored by the shadow of the big rocks, and sometimes the whole jar is threatened because who keeps enormous, jagged rocks in a glass jar anyway? You can be as orderly and as wise as you'd like and still make a mess. You can be as intentional and as thoughtful as you'd like, and still some things may not fit properly. You can be as considerate and careful as you'd like, and still the whole thing could shatter at your hands. This is not only true of rocks and jars, it's true of our own lives. And today we'll see it's not only true of our own lives, it's true of the greatest work project that the architect of our faith has ever undergone, and that's the church, the kingdom of God. Sometimes, despite best efforts, some of the smaller rocks get missed. And sometimes, despite the Holy Spirit's leading, the whole thing can come close to shattering. And sometimes those rocks that seem unimportant are revealed to be just as crucial as the big rocks themselves. Let's read the story of the conflict with the widows and the appointing of the seven men in Acts 6 verses 1-7. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Ron, how do you say this name? Is it Nicanor? Nicanor? However you want to say it, you say it. No worries. Um, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted as well. So that's our passage for today, and it's an interesting one to me for several reasons. I appreciate how Luke, who must have been very tempted to paint a highly idealistic portrait of the church, is unafraid to address the church's warts and missteps. Our last chapter began by introducing us to Ananias and Sapphira, who were motivated by greed and jealousy, and ended up lying to the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the church itself. So there have been problems that we've seen cropping up in this excellent community. Possessions and prestige were two diseases that had the potential to infect and to suffocate the effectiveness of the body of Christ. And so they were dealt with severely as a warning to all in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Here, the situation is very different. But the same two diseases appear to be at work, possessions and prestige. At the end of Acts 4, we were told that all the believers were cardia mia. Remember that? Remember that little Greek phrase? Anybody remember what cardia mia means? One in heart and mind. All the believers were cardia mia, one in heart and mind. And this unity led many to sell property and give graciously to those in need. To the extent where there were none in need. Everyone was taken care of. Possessions were not a concern. They were shared or sold for the good of all. And prestige was not a concern. People laid down their social statuses and shared the table of fellowship with their brothers and sisters across, across the social spectrum. Kardia mia—it It is an amazing and challenging little phrase. And yet here we are, one chapter later, and the system is breaking down. Apparently, not everyone was receiving equal portions from the collective pot. Apparently, some types of people are more equal than other types of people. The Greek-speaking widows were not receiving their share, while the Hebrew-speaking widows were doing just fine, apparently. Greeks, the, the Greek-speaking widows, Greek-speaking um, Jewish settlers, had come from afar, from all around the Mediterranean. I could pull up the map that Dennis had and show you again. But they came from not the area around Jerusalem. And the reason they came to Jerusalem was sort of a pilgrimage. They wanted to die in the Holy City and be buried there in the Holy City. But that left them slightly more vulnerable. It left them more vulnerable than the average Hebrew-speaking widow because they often didn't have any family around to support them. They had traveled from afar to live their last days in the city. And so they may not have had the support system that the Hebrew-speaking widows had. All widows in that day as well as orphans, as well as foreigners, were socially small, uh, made socially small by society. But this category of widow was even slightly smaller. Moreover, there were likely some pre-conversion prejudices rising up against the look down upon Greek speakers. They maybe weren't seen as true Jews. Even in a movement founded on unity, grace, and compassion for the least of these, Old human nature tends to crowd its way in, especially when the movement is multiplying and expanding at such an enormous rate. People will be ignored. People will be left behind. Even some of the people for whom this whole movement was initiated in the first place. In other words, some of the smaller rocks in the jar, the Greek speaking widows, are being missed. And some of the jagged rocks in the jar, the old prejudices and biases, are threatening to shatter the whole thing. So, they need to be careful. And here's your word nerd moment for the Sunday. Love these. The word translated complaining in the Greek is the same Greek word used when translating the grumbling of the Israelites in the desert against Moses. So, the same way that they grumbled against the leadership of Moses, now the people are grumbling against the leadership of the apostles. And that grumbling, way back in Exodus and in Numbers, It threatened to erupt into civil war. In fact, God took severe steps to ensure that that things didn't fall apart. That same word is used in this instance. So Luke wants us to understand the potential for messiness that's found here in this situation. Things could get ugly pretty quick. It's not a theological issue. It's a practical issue. It's a very human issue. And one that requires wisdom and discretion. Because the one thing that cannot happen to the church then or now is disunity. They cannot be fractured. And so wisdom and discretion is needed. And so enter the apostles. Rather than doing some of the things that leaders tend to do, like complain about the complainers, saying things like, what's with these whiny widows anyway? Rather than complain about the complainers, and rather than Here's an interesting thing that some church leaders do. They prioritize the spiritual over the physical. The apostles didn't do that. If the apostles had said, ladies, man shall not live by bread alone, then the ladies, the widows could say, yeah, but we're not men. Give us our bread. We're hungry. We need bread. You know, pray for us. Yes. But give us our bread too. We want more. I imagine them using a sassy grandma voice and wagging a finger at the apostles. Rather than being reactive or unsympathetic, the apostles tackle this important issue head on. They deal with it immediately. They show leadership. They recognize the threat to unity when they see it, and so they act swiftly and decisively. And in doing so, actually establish the structure for church leadership that many churches, including our own, still follow to this day to some degree. Are you part of a committee? Most of you are. Then you are following the example of the apostles here. Setting up groups of leaders aside from, I don't want to say the main leaders, because it's all important work. The apostles have different tasks to perform. So they suggest the believers look for seven men, seven being a good, holy number, who can deal with these day-to-day operations. The nominated men were to fit the following qualifications. They were to have good reputations, they were to be filled with the Spirit, and they they were to be filled with wisdom these have become the gold standard qualifications for any church leader in any church setting over the last last 2,000 years. And I would add that certainly is open to women as well. It doesn't need to just be men who have these qualifications and can be leaders. Now, to our ears, the names of these seven men are unremarkable. The first two names are familiar names in the book of Acts, Stephen and Philip. We will encounter them shortly. And the last name, Nicholas, is a familiar name in general, but those middle four names, they're doozies. One sounds like a mid-sized sedan. Buy the new Chevrolet Prochorus today. One sounds like a disease of the mouth. I got a bad case of Nicanor the other week. Hope Angie doesn't contract Nicanor from all her smooching. That's my embarrass my wife moment for the service. One sounds like, of course, a cartoon meerkat who's best friends with a talking warthog. And one sounds like a delicious Italian cheese. Hey, don't dislike the, the Parmenas on me next time. The names don't sound like anything special. And I'm sorry if those jokes were all terribly lame. It was uh, one in the morning when I wrote them, so that's what you get. The names may not sound like anything special, but we haven't got very well-trained ears for this sort of thing. There is something very special about these seven names. Anyone want to guess what nationality all of these names come from? Somebody, go ahead. Greek, yeah. They're not Hebrew names. These are Greek names. Now, while it's not uncommon for people to have both a Greek and a Hebrew name, think of Simon Peter. Simon is a Hebrew name. Peter is a Greek name. He went by both. More Peter after Jesus gave him that name. But that's an example of somebody who had both a Greek and a Hebrew name. And that was not uncommon. But here it seems that Luke is communicating something important to us. In order to meet the needs of the Greek widows... The whole community, and remember, it's not the apostles who found these guys. They just nominated them, or they just established them. It was the community's job to find these seven men. And the seven men they found were Greek-speaking leaders to help ensure that the problem would be fully dealt with. They would understand what the Greek widows are going through better than the Hebrew speakers would. And so to solve this problem, they appointed Greek speakers. That seems incredibly wise to me. We, we assume that they were Greek leaders because we know Stephen was the leader of a Greek church and Nicholas, it says, was a convert to Judaism. So he had been Greek. He had been a pagan Greek man converted to Judaism. For sure, yeah. They were surrounded by Greek culture. But as you got closer to Jerusalem, the more Hebrew it got. But to solve the problem of, of the Greek widows not getting their fair share, the community and the apostles, established Greek-speaking leaders. That's very gracious, and it makes sense. It's good leadership. The believers took the matter of disunity very seriously, and they took every step to ensure the smaller stones would be cared for, and that the jagged rocks of prejudice wouldn't jeopardize the whole structure. What are priorities in the kingdom? Well, service to the least and the lost has to be considered one of the highest priorities. And here the community faithfully realigned their priorities to those of the kingdom. They made sure that the the smallest of these were taken care of. It's interesting that the first office bearers to be appointed in the church were chosen not specifically for evangelism or preaching or healing ministries. You think of those are the big ticket items in the church. But the first board of leaders that was established was created for simple administrative service. Now, undoubtedly, these seven men were involved in more than just a primitive food bank. That was a part of their role and the reason they were chosen. But we know that they were involved in more. There are some very recognizable names among the seven. In fact, it can be argued that, beginning here in Acts 6, the seven chosen men begin to supersede the acts of the twelve apostles even. Partially because the gospel gets opened up to the Gentiles, and these Greek believers are closer to the Gentiles than many of the twelve were. Stephen of whom special mention is made of his fullness of faith and 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 the Spirit, will become, by the end of chapter 7, the first martyr for Jesus. And as we examined last week, that means he was counted worthy to give his life as a true disciple. He was specially blessed to be the first martyr. I know that's not how we see it, and it's definitely a tragedy. You don't wish this on anyone. But Stephen was lucky. He was blessed. He was fortunate. Of all the great followers of Jesus, he holds the unique honor of being the first to receive the glory that comes with fully and lovingly sacrificing your life for Jesus Christ. So he's a big deal. And he's one of the seven, not one of the twelve. Philip also plays a bigger role in the, in the narrative of Acts than many of the twelve. Some of the twelve, we don't know anything that they did, really, according to Acts. But we know some of the things that Philip did. His service in Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch our major stories in chapter 8 and by chapter 21 he's given a nickname even philip the evangelist a cool nickname can you start calling me chris the evangelist or something something cool like that that'd be great angie says no shaking her head never mind <laughs> but philip is a big deal and he didn't become a big deal just by handing out food but that's where it begins that's where it began for philip was a simple, small, servant-hearted task. See, if you want to be a leader in the kingdom, you must be a servant. I'll say that again. This is the number one thing that I learned through the ministry of Alberta Bible College. And I could not be more thankful. If you want to be a leader, you must be a servant. And those who submit and sacrifice and serve are already doing miraculous things. It is hard for humans to do those things. To them much more will be entrusted. They are the faithful servants. If you're faithful in the small things, Jesus says, you will be given larger things to be in charge of. Why do you think Stephen was given the honor of being the chief martyr, the first martyr? Why do you think Philip had such an excellent reputation? Why were they entrusted with two of the most urgent sacred callings of God's holy church? Take care of the poor and cultivate unity. Can you think of two things more sacred? It's not very many and they were entrusted with those two tasks why because they were faithful they were spirit filled servants they didn't lobby for the role of leadership they didn't hold an open election they were nominated because they were recognized for their servant hearts they put the big rocks the high priority rocks into the jar first and everyone saw that and everyone knew that that would make them excellent leaders fit for this task they sought ye first the kingdom of god and so many other things were added unto them they weren't the 12 but they were the seven and that was pretty darn close which brings me to another interesting conversation point here in this story and i return again to the image of the rocks in the jar would you say the apostles are more important than these seven chosen servants i don't know i, I don't know how i would answer that question Perhaps Dr. Ron Fraser can help me out with it. The apostles are certainly the chief leaders of the church, but important is a loaded word, especially in a movement where one of the main principles is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. I'm not sure that the apostles were more important than the seven men, but here's what I do know. The work of the apostles is not more important than the work of the seven. I can say that with some certainty. Now, it may appear as though the work of the twelve was more important than the work of the seven. Right After all, the apostles need the community to appoint these seven men because as it says in verses 2-4, to we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. It sure sounds like the top guys taking the glory positions and leaving the dirty work to the underlings, doesn't it? The way it's phrased look, we got other stuff to do. We're not running a food bank here. It sounds like it's demeaning the work of the seven. But that's just because we're hearing it through our upwardly mobile, look out for number one, business model, hierarchical North American lens. We hear this story through our North American ears. The apostles are not CEOs working for the bottom line of the kingdom. And the seven are not the janitors tasked with cleaning up the mess not at all. The church is the body of Christ, and the body of Christ has many parts, and all of the parts are necessary for the health of the body. The apostles were not more important people with more important tasks and a more important calling. That's what I believe. Rather, the apostles simply had a different focus. They have a different set of gifts. They have different priorities. The role of the twelve The role of the twelve is leadership through preaching and prayer, an important office to hold, right? But the role of the seven is leadership through practical hands-on service, follow-up service. You can't have one without the other. Something's missing if you don't have both of these things. If you come here and sit in this pew just to hear good preaching and then you go out and nothing changes and there's nothing for you, then we're missing something, right? Or if it's just acts of service with no aspect of teaching and Jesus and growth, something else is missing too. Different parts perform different roles. God had called the apostles to serve a certain way. The same God called the seven servants to serve in a different way. The apostles were uniquely positioned to teach powerfully in the temple since they had in-depth training at the feet of the rabbi. Prochorus or Timon, they couldn't fulfill that role as perfectly as James or John or Peter. They didn't walk with Jesus for three years. But because James and John and Peter needed to be faithful to their calling, that meant men like Prochorus and Timon were uniquely situated and uniquely gifted and uniquely prioritized to be faithful to their own unique calling. And what a worthy, honorable, sacred calling they had. After all, what's more important to Jesus than feeding a widow, than caring for the least of these? They had a high calling as well. And so just as Jesus had called each of the twelve apostles to follow him some three or four years earlier on the shores of of the Sea of Galilee, now he calls seven other faithful servants to follow him as well. They may not be rocks with the same enormous presence as the twelve, but without these seven faithful rocks, the jar would be emptier indeed. Does that make sense? And so today we heard from Aislin She and Jason are small rocks doing incredible acts of service, not to widows, but to urban youth, who are a different social group with a similar hunger for true nourishment and genuine compassion. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for how you are faithful to your calling as servants that you perform inglorious tasks for the glory of our Lord Jesus. We consider you to be big rocks in the jar that is the kingdom. And to Ron, and Manel's not here today, but I would include Manel for sure. To Ron, thank you that you were also faithful to your callings to shape rough rocks like myself. And now I'm going to cry. Thank you. Thank you that you were faithful to your calling, to shape rough rocks like Angie and myself, into rocks that fit slightly less precariously into the kingdom jar. You are a solid rock, and you have served as the foundation to many young leaders who are at risk of crumbling apart or muddying the waters of faith, you and your colleagues at ABC. You cannot be thanked enough for your faithful service, Ron and Benel, that you are filled with spirit and filled with wisdom and are a true leader. And in honor of a sister in Christ, counted worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus in order to bring him glory, Marcella. She was a small stone when she first came, but as she leaves this earth, our little jar called Clyde Christian Bible Church doesn't fit together quite like it used to. There's a gap. There is a rock missing. Without that gentle and kind rock, we as a body are missing a part. There is no small role among the servants of the kingdom. None of you is a small stone, and neither was Marcella. Hers was no small role. and So may her Lord and Master graciously welcome her home as a faithful servant. And Finally, to each of you in this room, my brothers and sisters at Clyde Christian Bible Church, each of you has a role. Each of you has a unique calling. Each of you has a special place in this jar. Angie and I are two very small stones in this whole thing. Together, we fill the jar to the brim. Though we may jostle and scrape against one another in this jar, I am eternally grateful that we refuse to shatter the glass and wreck the whole beautiful work. Thank you for your faithful service, whether that service is great or small, whether it is sporadic or regular, whether it is background or foreground, whether it is cheerful or reluctant, whether it is spiritual or practical. Thank you. May we continue to seek him and serve him together so that others may know the joy of fitting into this jar. After all, the passage ends with a reminder that in the face of disunity and in broken human nature, the king remains victorious. This is verse 7. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were even converted too. These are not like the high council priests who are kind of like the bad guys. These are like the pastor priests, the local synagogue priests. They were beginning to come around too. Even they, because of the work and the ministry of the church. And so we have work to do. Each one of us has a work to do. A unique calling to fulfill. We have services to perform and many different unique roles to fulfill within this family. Many different callings... But one shared big rock priority. And that is seeking the kingdom with others, serving the king and others. That is what I believe our calling is. All of us. That is our big rock priority. And how this happens looks different for each of us. But there are no small rocks in this jar. Each one of you is a big rock. And I'm thankful that you take your roles seriously. And you, you see your service to your, to your master. as as crucially important as you do. So thank you, good and faithful servants. I know I'm not Jesus saying that, you know, at the pearly gates or whatever, but allow your pastor to say it uh, every once in a while, if I may. Thank you for your service. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you call each one of us, no matter how small we are, no matter what size of rock we are, thank you that you call us and you shape us And you give us a place in this jar. Thank you for the work of these servants here with me, my brothers and sisters. Thank you for how you call even the least of these and that when we are the least, when we are the most submissive, the most servant-hearted, you make us the most. You you make the least the first. Thank you for the glory that, that comes with simple service and love to you and caring for others. Father, I pray that we as a church would continue to look outside of ourselves, to expand out, to bring more rocks and stones into this jar. But mostly, Father, as we read this this story, we thank you for your unique calling on each of our lives, and we thank you that there is no stone too small to be included in your jar. You are very good, Father, and we thank you for this time together. Amen. Spotlight time. Let's go down and share it together.